Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fandango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. <sighs> Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango. It's your ticket to the movies. Bet the Edge, I'm Jay Croucher here with a clean-shaven Drew Dinsick. Uh, today we're going to talk about a little reflection on the NFL season now that we're a week removed from the Super Bowl. Uh, feels a lot longer than that, that uh, the Niners were fumbling punts on their own 16, but we'll go through and uh, talk about any lessons learned uh, from the season, and then we'll talk uh, some tennis, the WTA Dubai and the outrights oh. in that market uh, with Arena Sabalenka uh, back and the favorite narrowly over Igor Sviantek. And then we'll talk NBA make-miss playoff markets, uh, given that we are not watching the All-Star game right now and, uh, and I have a little interest <laughs> in doing so. Uh, but let's start with the NFL, Drew. Um Big takeaways, uh, betting wise, from the season. For you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, you know, recap uh, Steph Curry picking my pocket again. Uh, I feel like every time I doubt Steph Curry, he specifically comes after me, uh, beating uh, Sabrina Ionescu in the uh, in the three point challenge last yeah. night. I will say um, uh, I was heavily against Curry in uh, was it the twenty two finals <laughs> against Boston, and that uh, yep. was absolutely terrifying. And yeah. uh, having him rip my heart out in Game Four, uh, something I'll never forget. It's no fun. It's not fun. <laughs> it's really not. I uh, don't enjoy it. Um, but no, there are a lot of takeaways from 2023 that I think are worth reflecting on. Um, and I guess I want to give a, a kind of a renewed shout out to some, you know, a part of the process that I was a little bit, um, I, I kind of dismissive of, I guess, in years past, which was just watching rewatching the games the film study and what the you know, what was gleaned from uh rewatching some of uh the most important games this season was very valuable uh and this season in particular it was uh, valuable because there were so many uh replacement starts from huge huge quarter you know huge quarterback changes in season uh that mattered uh and if you weren't watching the games if you weren't really trying to study and understand exactly who was capable of doing what when where how why uh then that was a, you know an enormous uh, hole in your handicap and so um yeah i have kind of a a, a renewed enthusiasm for being able to chart myself for being able to kind of come up with grades myself uh, because at this point there's no reason not to try to do that. Um, player level is everything in my opinion uh, in both NBA and NFL. And it, so if you do not know what the appropriate value of a given player is for, you know, from the purposes of just that player's absence and that player's replacement, uh, then you're at a huge disadvantage. Um, I am still, not expecting to change my process much where I'm going to continue to play uh, midweek limits. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's fundamentally where I am at the most comfort. Uh, I don't think I can beat NFL at the close, uh, but you give me some, uh, you know, sides in particular on Wednesday, Thursday, that's kind of the, uh, the real hunting ground for me at this point. And uh, I don't have an edge much at all. If, you know, if I ever did on totals, uh, so I'm going to continue to pivot away from totals and towards sides. And uh, I think ultimately, um, you know, the, you know, most of the reflection I think we have to do on this podcast comes with how 
we bet the awards markets when we enter those markets and what matters for those markets. But, um, you know, when it comes to sides, uh, I think I learned pretty, pretty, uh, clearly that, um, over the first portion of the season, you know, what mattered the most was just having fares that were better than market over the second portion of the season. It was more of how did you correctly weight priors relative to what you have learned through four games? Because my, you know, the, the most, um, lucrative portion of the season for me was really week five through eight, where I felt like I was, you know, kind of upweighting priors more than market generally. Uh, and I think that, uh, really kind of gave me a, a little bit of an advantage on sides. Uh, and then, you know, as you get to the later portion of the season, correctly capturing, uh, coaching impacts and, uh, uh, and just in general, who was able to find um, tendency breakers, who was able to find differentiating factors as, you know, as teams figured certain, te- you know, figured certain offenses out, figured certain schemes out, figured players out, uh, being able to identify that and uh, capitalize on that was hugely important. And, uh, and really kind of in that vein specifically, uh, I think the idea of, you know, really kind of dialing in on, um you know specifically teams like the eagles this is maybe the best example of all uh and knowing that the other shoe was going to drop and being patient and continuing to bet against them even though they were coming up with miracle wins against the likes of the cowboys the chiefs the bills uh, and finally getting that, uh, you know, that, those wins to come home was pretty hugely important. So uh, patience is always a premium when it comes to betting the NFL. And uh, that's one of the takeaways that I need to make sure I have in mind as we enter the 2024 season. What about you? Yeah, I think on the game level and I guess team level and team outright level, the the things that I would take away is one, like the biggest, one of the biggest edges in these sides in the side and total markets, just injury news. Uh, and sure. it's not, I'm not talking about like getting a text from someone who works on a team or something like that kind of stuff. I'm just saying like publicly available information. Like I was able to bet on the Ravens as I, th- I think dogs to Dorian Thompson Robinson. Um, it's like it's Lamar Jackson against DTR, uh, the beat writer for the athletic for the Browns, whose name escapes me, uh, tweeted out like, I don't think the Sean is going to go. It uh, doesn't look like his shoulder is any place to play. And the Ravens were like dog or pick or minus one. And the market just, it's difficult for the market to just kind of instantaneously off of surprise news, find efficiency. Um, and, you know, books at that time, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday or something. The limits are still pretty high for that. And you can, and it's not like you have to rush and you have two minutes to get in. Like it will take a few hours for the book to really find where it needs to be. And it may not be until after that as well. So that is the first thing. The second thing is that where you get real variance for a team is when you have a quarterback who might have tremendous upside. So if you're betting on a long shot to win a division or to make a run in the playoffs, like you need variance at the quarterback position typically. So uh, if you want to bet a division long shot this year, um, CJ Stroud was able to deliver that variance. If you're looking next year, like the Carolina Panthers have more variance than the New York Giants because Bryce Young is still more of an unknown with a new head coach than, you know, if presuming Daniel Jones is going to be the quarterback. I can't imagine there is a ton of upside in that team relative to teams with more unknown younger quarterbacks so those were the two things and then the other thing from the RI perspective we talked about this a little bit on the last show but like sometimes there is you get a premium in a good way betting favorites often in the NFL in the Super Bowl market in the conference title market um, at mid-season or later in the season where the market isn't projecting enough how the price will shorten based on just inertia like sure. for a long time like the Niners were like plus 500 plus 600 to win the Super Bowl when it was pretty clear that they were you know field goal better than every other team in their conference that type of range uh, I know people have different opinions on Dallas and how they were rated but if you just like added up the price of Niners to get the one seed Niners likely money line prices in the three playoff games they're going to need to win 
like it's not even clear you're getting to the plus 500 plus 600 price let alone the other scope for them to win without the one seed and uh money lines off of that so those would be my three big uh takeaways at the side and uh and team level mm, okay i that all that all checks out to me uh the thing that i'm the most excited to really dive into in the soft season is um it is very very challenging to divorce coaching and scheme from player when it comes to successful teams in particular like how much is the chief success because pat mahomes is generational versus he's with andy reed who's calling a great scheme and he's with travis kelsey it's tough to divorce those sometimes uh and what i think was kind of unique about the 2023 season is with all of the um uh, kind of you know huge volume of backup quarterbacks that we saw across the NFL. You have actually a pretty decent data set finally, a decent sample size uh, to dig in a little bit and try to divorce. Okay, well this guy's scheme works independent of being with a generational quarterback or being with a guy like Jake Browning, right? Like I'm specifically thinking of the Bengals here, right? Like the fact that the Bengals were so effective with Jake Browning in the absence of uh, Joe Burrow, I think tells you a lot about, uh, you know, uh, specifically um, Zach Taylor and his ability to scheme an offense and maybe Brian Callahan, who now takes over in Tennessee. And so I think kind of teasing out a little bit, uh, you know, kind of uh, who can succeed independent of talent, um, you know, and, you know, particularly kind of coming up with uh, fair ratings for specific units offensive lines, defensive lines, defensive secondaries, where you can say like, okay, well, um, you had a, a talent poor secondary going into the season that performed very well. Like that has to be coaching. And now that coach is in a new system or now that coach has more talent uh, and carrying that forward in a way that uh, I think uh, has value is uh, probably going to manifest some edges as we head into the 2024 season. But um, you know, overall, it was a hugely successful season for us. And, you know, particularly when it comes to picking sides and, uh, I'm always, I'm never, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm always feeling very, very thankful, uh, because there was always, there's always luck involved. Um, calls went in my favor in general over the balance of the season. Fumbles went in my favor. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, just specifically evaluating your performance, what plays worked, what didn't, why uh, is, is uh, you know, is probably the most important part of uh, an off-season process in general. Uh, and I think everybody who's listening should do that. Uh, and I think everybody who's listening who, you know, found success betting the NFL, like, take a deep breath. You don't need to be firing on uh, Niagara Golden Eagles <laughs> against uh, against Quinn Quinnipiac, even uh, even though one of our good friends uh, uh, very 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 thankfully told me that the Golden the, the Purple Eagles were the side uh, this on this Sunday. Like like we're you're in a part of the season where if you're betting into college basketball, if you're betting into NBA, uh, or if you're taking on tennis, like if you don't if you're taking on golf. Like uh, golf was phenomenally, you know, entertaining this weekend. But if you're going to jump into those markets, just be very aware that, uh, you know, the, the people who are making those markets have, uh, you know, vastly more um, institutional knowledge at play in shaping fares than you would if you have not ever bet those markets. So just keep that in mind. Cool your jets. Take your profits. It's not a bad thing to take profits. Uh, and uh, yeah, definitely reflect on your own performance for the season. Indeed, yeah. When I talk to betters who you know bet NFL sides and totals for a living, um, the sure. questions I'm most interested in are: How do you weight coaching? How do you weight uh, like individual players going down on an offensive line? Like, how do you weight uh, individual non-quarterback players in general? And there's never like a singular concrete answer. Like no one, it's not something that you can, well, at least the people I've spoken to that you can like objectively nail down like what that is. It's just more, there are certain factors. You can look at how teams perform uh, when the player is on or off the field. You can look at PFF grading, which for as much as PFF cops, that is, you know, as we've talked about, that is, a, it's a system um, that, has a process uh, and I think generally arrives at 
more often than not the right answer and it all kind of melds together but uh let's talk about the awards markets um given we spent so much time on them during the season what were your big takeaways from process behind that oh man well comeback play of the year is a crapshoot um basically just in general like understand how the voters define these awards and understand if there is a award that's poorly defined uh, and steer clear of it. It's just kind of a valuable lesson. Um, it, it, and honestly, like this year, there were so many good candidates uh, out of the gate for coach of the year. I was like, you looked at it and you're like, man, this is a crowded market. And in a crowded market, you are best off just letting it kind of play out to a degree and entering later. Uh, there is really no, there are no heroes <laughs> for correctly calling Kevin Stefanski in august right like if you called kevin Stefanski, you didn't even call it for the right reason right and when it was all said and done and you could have gotten probably a better price in running than you could have gotten uh pre-flop so uh you know i think i i will definitely take specific lessons learned from you know identifying which markets are crowded and which markets are relatively narrow uh, and the narrow fo focused ones, I feel like there is a little bit more of an edge, at least for a player like me in those markets, because you can do things like break down, uh, you know, oh, offensive player of the year is a great example. Like if you can figure out who the highest scoring running back is going to be in fantasy, that's one of your candidates. If you can figure out who's going to have the most receptions and yards as a receiver, that's your other candidate. Those two players that's it like it's kind of a two-man two-horse race at that point uh and i think uh you know kind of you know defensive player of the year i think we enter next season with a very very strong likelihood that it's just going to go to parsons because he's the next guy and watt has his garrett has his uh like it's very tough to see you know bosa has his like who's you know storming the castle and making their you know case made as oh no i am the best defensive player it's probably parsons next and you know they, they that i think uh is is worth kind of keeping in mind and um you know i think uh, maybe the most valuable uh awards conversation we had over the entire season uh was a random monday where I, I was literally like, Jake, and I put a line through Lamar Jackson for MVP because he's like the total EPA. It was just, he's like 20th. <laughs> like he is nowhere close in terms of actually mattering. Like, can we just put a, you know, a, a, a Sharpie through him here? And you, you very calmly, coolly said, no, you can't because he could specifically slay the dragon on Christmas and Brock Purdy, and Tua, the next most likely candidate, the next week. And if you win those two games in those high-profile situations, then you are going to take the baton. And uh, the idea of sort of these awards being decided at the end of the season with literal head-to-heads, it's extremely dissatisfying. But if you can kind of just acknowledge that that's the way it goes then you can find edges so i i think that's kind of where my head is at on those but i'm much more interested to hear what you have to say about this yeah i think with mvp it's interesting because as you get closer to the end of the season with some of these awards and not all of them but some of them you can get a pretty good ballpark fair just on projecting money lines and teams winning or losing so you know with lamar uh the thing to me with Lamar, and it's subjective in a way, but like you have to bake into these awards who everyone wants to vote for, like who actually deep down people want to vote for. And no one wanted to vote for Brock Purdy. He was being held to an unfair bar and he was going to have to play well and beat Lamar Jackson and play better than Christian McCaffrey in that Christmas night game to actually win MVP. And I will go to my grave thinking that he would have won MVP had he done that. But Lamar just had more pedigree. He looks better than Brock Purdy. He doesn't have the drawbacks of a superstar supporting cast of Kyle Shanahan as his coach, as the alleged puppet master. And he just dominated all of these mid-season polls with voters and voter types, despite having no case at the time then on merit. And so I became pretty convinced that, and we, as you mentioned, we talked about this, that if Lamar just, if he beat San Francisco and he beat Miami back to back to clinch the one seed, 
Yeah. Uh, and that money line parlay, I think was, I can't remember, I think it was like plus 350 and Lamar's MVP price was plus 650 and it just never cohered. So I think that, you know, pricing these awards, it's one element of it is statistical. And then the other element of it is just the sound subjective read of how these human being voters are going to react to what happens and what they want to vote for. And, you know, even coach of the year for so much of the year, like, the people that people that voters wanted to vote for, I think, were probably for a chunk Dan Campbell and Mike McDaniel. Like Kyle Shanahan was just going to have a steeper hill to climb, uh, and John Harbaugh was going to have to have a steep hill to climb. People looking for a story, and those guys had really good stories. And D'Amico Ryan's was in that group as well. But to me, the biggest takeaways I would have from these awards is one. It's just, it's really hard to make your run and win an award in week 18 and to do it all in that week. And that's probably what D'Amico not winning taught me or at least reinforced in a way. And look, I still think it was a really good bet to bet D'Amico at 10 to 1 going into week 18, given that he literally had the same amount of votes as Kevin Spansky and lost on a tiebreaker that I don't think many people knew about. But he, all of his momentum had to come on the penultimate day of the season. And it's not so much that I think voters were like, oh, no, my ballot is done. Like, it's Stefanski. I'm not thinking about this. It's more that you just, you would have had like nine days to start thinking about this after the Browns beat the Jets and you you become somewhat entrenched in Stefanski as your guy and you need something kind of momentous to topple that and to change your position in the last week, in the last two days of the season. And look, 20 people did that, I think, with D'Amico, or at least 20 people voted for D'Amico first. But I think that, my takeaway there is that so Stefanski beat the Jets on Thursday night. If D'Amico's game against the Colts, if that had been two days later on the Saturday, I think D'Amico would have won like going away. And that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, and look, he, he very easily could have won anyway. So that would be my first takeaway. The second one would be that when you are looking at the actual voter information out there, the votes that come out first, and this is the same in the NBA, the votes or, you know, the articles that come out first, they come from the people who give their vote the most thought. Because if you're thinking, if you're publishing articles about what your ballot is going to be or what it is at at this stage, you are giving a lot of thought to who you're going to vote for. And people who give a lot of thought to their ballots, they generally end up at, you know, what I would say is usually uh, the most meritorious cases uh, in the you know, think back in the NBA, like the first 20 votes that came out for six man of the year a couple of years ago, like Joe Ingles was lapping Jordan Clarkson because those are the people who are like digging into stats and really thinking about it more. And then the votes that came for Clarkson and were like, oh no, he's just averaging way more points per game, done, tick. And I think it's a similar thing with some of these awards where uh, with comeback player of the year, uh, my thing with that is not that, like I projected that Hamlin would get about 150 um, total points, and then you get 20 to 25 first place votes, and he ended up at 140. So it was a little bit over, but not by much. Where my miscalculation came was that I just thought Baker Mayfield was going to fracture the vote from Flacco way more than he ended up doing. And a lot of that was because the first, I think the first 20, I think there were about 25 votes that were kind of publicly out there. And of those 25, Baker was like, crushing Flacco in the 25 and he ended up getting destroyed overall. And I think a lot of that is that, you know, the people who, uh, you know, in my mind, considered their vote more were like, All right, well, Flacco's played five games, Mayfield's played 17. Mayfield has actually played at a much higher level statistically than Flacco. It's just Flacco had all these crazy moments and he was a louder story and he uh, has the, you know, the ridiculous touchdown to Jerome Ford in the Thursday night game. And I probably overweighted just the early votes that were coming out for Mayfield. Now, I still never could have projected under any circumstances that Flacco was only going to be off ballot three times out of 50. And I don't think I actually would have changed anything about my process with that award, but that was a takeaway for me, just remembering that, you know, the early votes are probably going to lean more in one direction than the other. And that sometimes the kind of the louder, more obvious, perhaps kind of just surface level case that has more of a chance to storm home um, than your, your Baker Mayfields who, you know, played in the NFC South and was on a 9-8 Tampa team that was never in prime time and no one really thought about. Yeah, that that's all fair. Um, I, I 
I, it's going to take me a couple more weeks to really kind of fully process the comeback player of the year thing. <laughs> like, I, like, what the hell, man? Joe Flacco played five games after coming back from not being rostered for from because he sucked. Like, the idea that his kind of, you know, that he caught the imagination of the voters to the degree where they were like, wow. Yeah, that's more impressive than, you know, this guy who died playing the game that we cover and came back and not and like overcame the mental and physical hurdles to play football again is freaking unbelievable to me. I, I really like like I'm I'm kind of stuck mentally on like just the how do you not recognize this? And I almost wanna like I don't wanna make this super meta or too deep, but like is there like a little bit of a bias where people are like they don't want to really rationalize the fact that what these players are doing is putting their lives on the line when they go out there and play? Like, like, is there a little bit of like they just don't want? Oh, wait, you gotta be, you gotta play more than he play. Oh no, like the 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 mental and physical stuff that Hamlin overcame to get back on the football field at all is just it's really tough for me to understand how that wasn't recognized, and I think. Um, you know, kind of the only be, you know, besides just the fact that I think there was potentially a, you know, a, 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 just a, a weird mental bias where people don't want to recognize how impressive that was on top of the fact that, uh, um, you know, the, the sequencing for games this year was unique, right? You had Christmas Eve and Christmas games. You had New Year's Eve and New Year, you know, New Year's Eve games, right? Like people were distracted. People were doing family things. People were, you know, literally away from the game to a degree. And a Thursday night game between the Jets and the Browns, which otherwise would be nothing, seemed to carry weight this year, which I don't think could, is an accident. I think it was sequencing, right? And uh, if you, you know, if if week if week seventeen, if week eighteen happen in a complete vacuum as opposed to when all of these voters, writers, whatever, are spending time with family, doing vacations. Like it felt like the Thursday night game, people getting caught up in that were like, oh, well, I made my decisions now. Stefanski, yep. Flacco, like Garrett, moving on, right? Like it, it's, it's absolutely absurd that a Thursday night game on December 28th could mean more because it happened on December 28th when everything else on December 23rd the 31st was somewhat ignored because it happened to be New Year's Eve. Yep. No, the sequencing is definitely key. The prime time aspects are key. Like you think about as well, like oh, if Dan Campbell, if that, uh, the Taylor Decker play gets called correctly, does oh, they, yeah. does he just win? Does he just win coach of the year? I th- at that think point? yes. Like I think yes. Favorite in the market. And so I think probably yes. Um, that's all. Yeah. Interesting thing to see. Yeah, the, the, the Hamlin stuff, it is, it's depressing to me. It's depressing mostly because, like, the Twitter disc, like, people just took so many shots at him, and and he went on Twitter being like, "Get off my back about this comeback player of this." Like, it's pretty grim overall, and so there's that, and then also on merit. I just like Hamlin's such a weird case that, but to me, like, voting Flacco over Mayfield is just indefensible. But ultimately, like, we're not betting on who deserves this stuff. Like, I had a big position on D'Amico Ryan's. He wouldn't have been sure. sick on my ballot, probably. Uh, it would Agreed. have been a big year, but Agreed. I mean, ultimately, yeah. yeah, they are fascinating markets. For me, like, it doesn't really feel like it because of how the last two awards with any suspense were announced, but this is my best season betting these awards. Uh, hopefully, people who've followed us on them came out in front as well. I mean, for me, I came out in front in, in five of them, small loss on offensive player of the year, big loss on comeback player of the year. But ultimately, um, these markets, they are beatable uh, and they do warrant uh, some study and attention. So before we get to WTA Dubai, spring training is here. So for those looking to get ahead on the upcoming MLB season, grab your Roto World Baseball Draft Guide. It's loaded with comprehensive positional rankings, projections, and player profiles to ensure your draft is a success. Visit NBCSports.com slash draft guide and use code baseball 24 to get 10% off at check. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fandango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. (sighs) Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. 
Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango, it's your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. All right. From uh, Demar Hamlin to Arena Sabalenka, uh, what do you make of the outright prices here? Absurd. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absurd. What in the world? Uh, okay. Why is Goff favored over Rabakina? I, 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 Goff is. I, I will literally like lost the plot. <laughs> like I, I, I am. I. I mean Rabakina. Like uh, okay. Let's uh, let's take a giant step back. <clears throat> We're in a weird time of the tennis calendar where some players have been playing a lot. Rebecca is kind of the top of that list. Some players have not played at all. And Sabalenka is your example there. Some players have been playing well, but not as not as often. That's your ego. Some players have been playing poorly, like Coco. <laughs> and so how you kind of mishmash that all is very, very tricky. Uh, this is a very, very difficult handicap here. But Iga not being the favorite for Dubai is very, very tough for me to rationalize. Um, you know, Sabalenka, last time we saw her play, she won the Australian Open. She won the Australian Open without really being tested, frankly. Like, she did not face any kind of real deal, um, you know, tough metal on her way to that title. Uh, her toughest competition was Coco Goff, who was not playing well and did not play well in that match. And so it's surprising to me that she's been given all of this leeway, all of this runway here when we have not seen her play. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're wondering, you know, Hey, I thought she was going to play, uh, in Doha. Why did was, that was a surprise scratch. Yes, it was a surprise scratch. She scratched because she got veneers on her teeth. I'm not joking. She went to the dentist and got veneers and that was more important than playing in Doha. Um, she is now coming off of her second, you know, her second slam title. Um, if she shows up and just goes scorched earth. Okay, fine. But uh, she's going to be playing players who have had a lot more match tested, uh, you know, kind of competition recently. And I will be very, very surprised if she comes through and blows this field away. I think she is a very clear bet against in this market. I do not think she should be a favorite. I think Iga uh, should be, you know, clearly the favorite, but but not much more than her current price. So Iga's like in the plus 240 ballpark. I make her more like plus 175. So it's not a huge edge. Um, and I think ultimately the the points here are Sabalenka could crash out for just match fitness problems at any point in time. Iga could beat her head to head in a final for sure. Uh, Coco is not in any way, shape, or form worthy of a three, uh, the third uh, favorite in this market, in my opinion. And uh, Rabakina would be clearly the second choice for me behind Iga, except that she has played a lot of tennis and she is wearing uh, the uh, fatigue very clearly. Um, I'm not sure if you got to see the uh, final in Doha. It was, it was very, very, very high quality tennis. Yep. Iga versus uh, Rabakina was, it was chef's kiss, awesome women's tennis and Rabakina was cleaning the court with Iga in the first five games of that one. Ultimately she got a boo-boo. She was bleeding. She had called for an MTO. The MTO took a long, long time. And in that time, Iga got a chance to talk to her coach, talk about the tactics. And I think largely like fixed exactly what she was doing wrong, which was playing like precision, you know, first strike, you know, type of tennis uh, and was like, hey, like play some higher probability shots. You know, it, don't be afraid of rallies like make Rabakina try to make the, you know, the mistake here. Uh, and with a little bit of wind and a little bit of, uh, you know, tough elements, that was the absolute difference. Like there was no doubt about it. Like coming out of that MTO, it was 4-1 Rabakina and Iga like basically had it from there. 
Uh, and, you know, she wobbled a little bit at the end of the first set, wins in the tiebreak. Uh, it was a really impressive tiebreak. The quality of points was just superlative. And if you're telling me that, you know, that uh, uh, Dubai is not going to be a repeat of Iga Rabakina, I'll be sincerely surprised. I guess Rabakina, you know, crashing out because of being, uh, you know, a little bit fatigued is is not crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, what you saw in terms of the level of play from those two players at this point in time is very, very tough for Sabalenka to match. Uh, and, you know, Sabalenka may find some success in uh, Indian Wells or Miami. Um, I wouldn't be, I would lean more Miami because that seems to be more her kind of cup of tea in terms of conditions. Um, she obviously won Indian Wells last year impressively, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, ultimately like this is a very clear opportunity for, uh, Iga to take home another title. She's playing very confidently right now. She's, uh, you know, her game looks, uh, extremely tight and impressive. So, um, yeah, you want to bet for WTA Dubai, I think you play Iga and you, uh, and you kind of reevaluate when you get to the final. If this is an Iga Sabalenka final when, when, you know, the dust settles, uh, then, uh, I would make Iga something in the ballpark of minus 185 by my numbers right now. Uh, and so getting her at a plus money price to, to ship, uh, makes the most sense to me. Okay. One question before we move on to NBA. How has this kind of swing impacted how you view the US Open outright pricing, particularly how you would order Sabalenka, uh, Sviantek, Goff, Rabakina? And also, like, is Osaka going to get perhaps in that mix? Because she seems like the, the dark horse. I almost think that Goff might be fifth out of that group at this point. Yeah, that's where my head is at. Yeah. Um, I will say this, though, that uh, this time last year, um, we actually, but we might even record it. <laughs> we could probably find the, hey, remember when we said this? Uh, Goff was a mess in the yeah. spring of yes. 2022, uh, 2023. She was like, she lost the plot. Like, uh, I think it was Jimmy Butler showed up and watched her match in Miami. And I was, it was like, it like it's like oh man jimmy butler's coming to watch coco golf like oh oh uh oh loves like, tennis he loves tennis he loves he loves it he loves the miami open um but uh like i i remember watching that match and being like man cough like what happened she had so much promise she was gonna be the next big thing for american tennis what is going on um and she was a disaster on the clay swing she was a joke at Wimbledon and then she came into the U.S. hardcore swing and was just like all business and it was very very cool to see and it was very impressive I didn't win any money on it so I don't really have like an affinity for Coco Gauff uh, but uh, it was impressive like like honestly like she turned her season around in 2023 uh, you know just when it came to the calendar and you know where you are you know and, and around the globe and a lot of players like like, like if you're new to handicapping tennis, like news alert, like players treat different portions of the calendar with different levels of intensity. Some are showing up for appearance fees, showing up for a little match fitness. Now, I don't really think I have a chance to win this tournament. I'd just like to get, you know, a couple of couple of matches in and, you know, make my sponsors happy. Like that happens. This is a long calendar. Like there are no breaks. And, you know, realistically, like, Coco kind of treating this portion of the season, you know, as as a little bit of a write off is not 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 you know not surprising. I will say that um, Osaka was, I've seen flashes, yeah. like 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 enough to be like, okay, it's coming. Hmm. I don't know that it's uh, coming between now and the U.S. Open. Uh, if she doesn't get a title here between you know between right now and uh, the Miami. Uh, then it's not happening between you know that's not happening before Canada because she's not winning clay she's not winning on grass like this she is a hardcore player period uh, but she's getting the match fitness under her you know she's she's improving uh, and I could very very well see her being the you know fourth choice for the U.S. Open um, and yeah. I mean, women's tennis is in a really good place, man. Like, yeah. there is, there could be, like, we, like, realistically for the US Open, I could say you have about a five player field with minimal margins between Iga, Sa Sabalenka, Rabakina, Coco, and Osaka. 
And that is a very cool world because there's not very many t- tournaments, tennis tournaments, where you've had five players of uh, of equal strength that have uh, kind of gotten to that stage. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. And I, honestly, really, Indian Wells and uh, and Miami are going to be freaking awesome. They're going to be yep. great, and yep. I think uh, they'll be instructive. And if and honestly, like I think the bet is bet against Sabalenka because again, like she's got her second slam. You know, at this point, she's probably pointing to, hey, maybe I can steal the French Open, or maybe I can. Oh, I'll I'll try grass, or like specifically, like I will focus on the U.S. Open. Like I I don't think that realistically uh, accumulating points because like she's skipped specific tournaments where she could have accrued points for ranking which tells you that she's not really focused on that. And so her showing up in, you know, in, in, uh, in Dubai and just lighting the world on fire would be very surprising to me. Yep. To me, what makes women's tennis so interesting on hardcore is that you can argue that Iga should be the favorite for these tournaments, but she also probably has the third highest ceiling uh, in a given match just because Rabakina and Sabalenka just frankly hit the ball harder um, and can paint lines in a way that, you know, Think back to uh, what a couple of years ago when she played Rabakina in like the quarters of the Australian Open. And it's not like Iga played poorly; it's just Rabakina just played her off the court. She's got a bigger serve when it's going uh, and more power. But uh, one to watch. All right, Big Ten teams looking to boost their resume for the Big Dance down the backstretch of the conference season. And on Tuesday night, four teams will make their case for the committee. It starts when Iowa travels to East Lansing for a battle with Michigan State at six thirty Eastern. Then stick around as upset-minded Maryland tries to take down Wisconsin at nine. Stream both games exclusively on P. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. All right, little NBA make miss playoff markets to close. Uh, The East is a little bit more locked in i think the suspense here comes with whether the sixes will slide into the play-in uh and the repercussions off of that otherwise it's fairly segmented where you know chicago and atlanta are probably going to be 9-10 uh and then two of philadelphia indiana miami and orlando will be your 7-8 but given that those teams will be in the 7-8 and they're probably better than the bulls and the hawks anyway you suspect that the eight is not known but pretty solid in the west it is much more chaotic where you have your top four which is fairly set though uh as we talk about with uh Jokic mvp Jokic is now as close to the six seed as he is to the one seed uh with the nuggets but this is much more uh there are some prices closer to pick namely the warriors and the lakers who are each plus 110 to make and minus 130 to miss uh, if I was going to make one bet across these two conferences, it'd be the Warriors to miss the playoffs at minus 130. Like they're the 10th seed right now. They're, they're three and a half games back of eight. They're four games back of seven. Like I think they're, they're unlikely to climb into the top half of the play-in. All the teams above them are solid as well. And it's not like, like the Warriors, yeah, they've gone on a bit of a run. It's not like I don't think they're like totally fixed and the – finals bound juggernaut again like that to bench clay thompson the market doesn't really respect them game to game uh i was surprised that the warriors uh weren't shorter to miss not like i think that they may well be better than the kings and maybe even the pelicans but they're just they're a long way back and the kind of structure of 
the play-in would suggest that you know they're probably going to have to win back-to-back games uh, on the road, uh, I would think. But what's your read on on the Warriors and on these markets generally? Well, you know, as we uh, come full circle on this podcast, uh, I'm yeah. not betting against Steph Curry. Yeah, the minute I put my money against Steph Curry is the minute that they go nuclear, win ten in a row, Jay. Uh, so no, I mean, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the I guess like how you price the Warriors right now. Um, has to be divorced from what you've gotten from them this season because so much of the season they've played without Draymond Green. Um, and if you are kind of being truthful and understanding of who Clay Thompson is at this point in his career, I think you probably have like a reasonable fare on the Warriors because you know Steph is still Steph. He is still you know top ten offensive player in the league clearly in terms of uh, rating and uh, uh, you know the the kind of up and coming, you know, in, you know, guys that they give you the reinforcements, uh, Kuminga and pods particularly uh, combined with uh, just in general, um, the uniqueness of Draymond Green's defensive uh, additions, I think is enough to think that the Warriors can find a way in. But uh, yeah, the price is implying that it's happening surely. And I don't know that I feel that way. Um, if I was going to take uh, one swing in this market, I don't mind swinging with the uh, the Hawks as okay. uninspiring as the Hawks are. Plus three forty, yes, is um, a little uh, it's it's off mark. It's off my numbers at least, uh, and it's because just like in general, like um, nine ten matchup, and then winner oh. against the seven eight matchup. Like uh, I would, I, I well, I would, I would have the Hawks as meaningful favorites over the Bulls in the nine ten. And at that point, you just got to beat whoever loses the 7-8. Uh, and it could be a team that's dealing with some meaningful injuries. Uh, and, and if it's uh, if you just have to get hot one game and you have an offensive engine that is uh, fired up by Trey Young, you can get it done. Uh, and so plus 340 is kind of intriguing to me for Hawks to f- sneak their way in as the 8 seed. Um, I think everything else in that market is priced pretty uh, pretty reasonably but uh god man you're really going against the warriors for real i think so yeah i don't think that's right. good uh i will say <laughs> though, even with that they do have an easy schedule like i said and also uh i think touch wood because uh, this would be calamitous if it went down but i think rudy gobert is going to win defensive player of the year if he plays another 11 games still think draymond green might be the best defensive player in basketball even i agree <laughs> i agree yeah and Chris Paul coming back, I think, will help just because it's just less like random dudes like Guy Santos, um, the Lester Canones, these guys. Like Chris Paul coming back in, even though he's obviously not what he was, he's still a good, beneficial player. But it's just, it's a lot of ground to make up. There's not that much game, there's not that many games left. The last thing I'll say on this um, is my, I think, biggest opinion in the West and where teams are seated and how they're ranked and how they're priced is. I don't understand why the Mavericks are dogs to the Pelicans to win that division. Uh, and mm. that kind of ripples into the make-miss playoff market where the Mavs are one game behind the Pelicans. They have a materially easier schedule than the Pelicans. They are likely to hold the tiebreak, which they tied the series 2-2, but the Mavs are up on division record. And with Luca and Kyrie healthy, like I think this team is just really good. And the thing that goes under the radar with them is that Derek Lively is just good. He's come in, he's good straight away. Gafford is useful. Dante Exum, when he's healthy, has actually been really good. And he's kind of a perfect complement next to Kyrie and Luca because of how he can guard, how he can move the ball. He makes a lot more sense next to those two guys than Tim Hardaway does. And Hardaway is, has kind of receded um, as the season has gone on with those guys healthy. Like we've talked about in the sixth man of the year market. My concern there would be, well, I'm not sure it's a concern. I'm not sure that PJ Washington's that good. Uh, and he was the big pickup, but Grant Williams wasn't giving them much. They had a lot of dead wood that was playing, and it kind of gets uh it, it gets mitigated a bit just by having kind of healthier, competent bodies. Um, and with the level that Luca is playing at right now, I mean like Personally, I would have Luca top three for MVP. Um, I think the odds correctly kind of reflect where he's at more or less. But at the level that he's playing at with the depth, with how this team fits, it's kind of a team that it's not not perfect, but it kind of reminds me of the Harden Rockets, the, the good iterations of that team where, yeah, if you put 
Dante Exum and Derek Lively and DJJ on other teams that weren't just heliocentric where they didn't have as clearly defined roles of just kind of, you know, defend, stand in the corner, roll to the hoop, that they're just, they become better by playing with Luca and Kyrie, Kyrie to a lesser extent. But uh, I'm higher on the Mavs, I think, than market and lower on the Pelicans. Okay. I don't have a strong opinion. Uh, I bet a lot of Pelicans this year because my numbers were saying do it. <laughs> but I mean, statistically, they were right. I just watched them play. I was like, it's yeah, yeah. Is it, is it they're, they're a little bit of a cold fish, surely. Yeah. Uh, and your points about the Mavericks are all spot on. Uh, Don Taxon right now grades as their fourth best player. Daniel Gafford grades as their fifth best player. Uh, so Excellent hurt at the moment, but I think he's he should be yeah. back. Yeah, like just saying though, like like I don't know that we really know how to correctly rate their closing five, uh, which yeah. is intriguing. Like if you're if we're at this point, yeah, if we're at this point of the season and you're not exactly sure what the ceiling is for the closing five, like that's a team to swing away on. Honestly, um, I would say that uh, uh, Dallas cleanly getting in, I have take no exception to. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, uh, on the Kings no price because I I am his like like I'm like epically low on this Kings team this year like I feel like they are a lot of smoke and mirrors and they're gonna they have a very tough schedule what eighth toughest schedule uh, coming in here um, and honestly like I make it even tougher than that because of some of the fatigue spots that they have coming up so like this Kings team to me looks like one that the uh, trap door could open uh, so you give me a give me a number here yeah uh, no, I like the Kings there. the eighth the the eighth, the eighth spot in the playoffs decided between uh, Sacramento and Golden State in Sacramento. What's uh, what's that line? The eighth for well, the Kings. Have, for, yeah, for the eighth seed. For the, I think the Kings are slight favorites to hold on to that just because they're three and a half games up on the Warriors. But yeah, I mean, I don't think this Kings team is very good. The net rating is hovered around zero for most of the season. To your point, they've got a hard schedule. They didn't add any reinforcements um, at the deadline. And it's just they're just such a blah team at the moment so yeah i think that they would probably project going forward as being worse than both the lakers uh and the warriors they have a harder schedule than both golden State have a really easy schedule which is um what kind of i mean that is a reason why they are minus 130 in the market i still think that that's a little bit generous to them um but no i could certainly see the kings uh missing the playoffs uh that's plus 220. so you think uh kings at home to decide the eighth seed against the Warriors, their favorites. Uh, yeah, but it's like less than a field goal, so to speak. Okay, right. Okay. Uh, okay. What is that line minus minus Kings minus one. I guess it'd be line, uh, maybe not line similar to Game Seven last year, given um, that the Warriors were probably yeah. in a stronger position at that point. Probably not going to get a swing out under two forty. No. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Oh, that's I'm, I'm dreaming. Yeah, okay. This is why this conversation is why I'm kind of low on Malik Monk, six man of the year, or at least don't yeah. think that, you know this is done at sure. all because yeah, he's going to be like he, he, he may well miss the playoffs, um, and could certainly fall into the into the nine seed, and he's already in the eight. So yeah, they're yeah. a strange team. All right, we are done. Don't forget to check out NBCSports.com for more information to help you with your wages. Thanks to those of you watching on our NBC Sports YouTube channel. And if you're listening to us in podcast form, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Also a reminder to find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. From Jay Croucher and Drew Dinsick, we'll see you tomorrow.